0: Hello and welcome. Uh, we're joined here today by George Sertej. Uh, George is a poet, artist, and one of the leading translators of Hungarian poetry and literature. Uh, he's won numerous awards for his own work. His translations from Hungarian to English have won many plaudits on both sides of the Atlantic. He's actually an innovative user of social media, uh, testing the 120-character limit of Twitter to, to its full extent. And he's in Budapest because he's recently been made a member of the Hungarian Academy of Arts, if uh, I can't. No, no. Distinction. Careful. This is
1: okay. the Széchenyi Academy of Arts. That is one side of the equation. And Széchenyi has all the artists I've ever admired. And there's a Hungarian Academy of Arts, which has a president which has declared itself to support patriotic Hungarian artists. And there I don't know anybody particular. I don't know many people who are on that, but that's the one that gets the government money. And the Serbini is the one that doesn't, and it's, that's
0: the one that's going to struggle. Well, that's a very important distinction. we are also joined here by Yusuf of once again, a professor from uh, Central European University. Thanks for joining.
2: Thanks. It's good to be back. It's a pleasure to meet you, George.
0: Pleasure to for me. Okay, so um, if we go back to your back to Georgia and your your background, my understanding is that uh, your family left Hungary, or brought brought you to the UK in 1956 as as a refugee. You know, can I ask, what, what was your family back then? Where, where did your family live originally in, in Hungary?
1: Well, my mother was Transylvanian. Uh, my father was Budapest. Um, they were both Jewish, but I didn't know that my mother was until after she died. I'd guessed, but I didn't know. And um, she had been in a couple of concentration camps. She lost all her family. My father came from a working class background here, worked with a plumber after, and he served in forced labour during the war, was very lucky to escape. Um, So he was with a plumber before the war, he joined the plumber again after the war, Um, and then when communism came in, um, they realised he was quite a bright guy, and they started putting him through university, and he served in a ministry for building. So he was actually within my mother, who was actually considerably to the left of my father, my father was a kind of social democrat, My mother was not allowed in a party, chiefly because she came from a middle class background in Transylvania. So that was the balance. They decided quite suddenly um, to go during 56.
2: How did they get out?
1: Walked. We all walked, lots of people walked. You got a train to near the border, then you got another train as far as I remember. I was just seven. In fact I was it was my eighth birthday when we crossed the border. And then we went to this small station, we were on the platform, lots, a number of other people got off with the same clear purpose, um, suitcases and everything. Local guy comes up, he would go across the border, go to this barn, whatever you got, you gotta give him stuff. And then about one o'clock in the morning, they came back He and a friend of his, as far as I remember. As far as I remember, they were pretty well boozed up. And then they just loaded. us, across part of the way to the borders, they just carry on there. We walked across overnight and arrived in a little coppice or wood, where suddenly there was a light in front of us and somebody in military uniform and some people thought it's, you know, the Hungarian, but it wasn't, it was Austrians. So that's it. Um, you know, some 220,000 people, maybe a bit more, 228,000, I think, in 56. And the borders were extraordinarily leaky risky. So you could go across because the military had taken a revolutionary side. So you didn't know who was doing what. But I think you could do that more or less till about February or March fifty seven and we did it on at the end of November in fifty six.
0: I mean, how do you describe your experiences of 1950s England when, when you arrived? This was in the kind of post-war period, yeah, like, yeah. one which might be considered to be you know, a little bit austere, or just coming out of that kind of post-war austerity well, period? Well, it was austere, but um, the refugee thing was
1: extraordinarily well organised, and it treated us very well. Um, all kinds of organisations, from students' organisations, to Women's Voluntary Service now, the RWDS or all... Um, they, I mean, because we were not, we had really had nothing, just, you know, absolutely nothing. They set us up in, um, first of all, in off-season boarding houses, well, first of all, in an disused army camp, the troops were all out in the sewers, um, because that was exactly the same time. Then we spent the winter and the beginning, and most of spring probably, in an off-season boarding house on the Kent coast, where my father, who spoke some English, acted as interpreter up to London, found us accommodation, found job, and so on as to there was a very i mean, partly because of the Cold War there was a great there was a very friendly reception to those who were perceived to have been you know, fighting against the Russians. Not that my parents did any fighting, but nevertheless, we were part of the same the same group of people. So it was good publicity, and people were, on the whole, in a very English sort of way, um, welcoming, nice, all that sort of thing. So no complaints.
2: And, and why did some, uh, some of the 56 refugees go to the UK and others go to the United States? Do you know why?
1: Contacts, possibly. Um, we originally wanted to go to Australia, but we couldn't because my father had a cousin in Australia. Because my mother had a heart condition and you have to be fully healthy to get this compound assisted passage. The US took far more people. I think the US, the UK, Switzerland, France, some Scandinavian countries, some into Israel, some into here and there. Um, I think it was just wherever you knew somebody. And if you didn't know anybody, then USA being bigger, I guess that's where people decided to go. They don't really know you,
0: I'm I'm just sort of thinking um, about the uh, what you're saying uh, in terms of the reception that you had in yes. the in the UK, and um, you know I've read a few John Lukacs books, mm-hmm. yeah, and um, it seems that that cohort, you know, the cohort from yeah. Hungary, in 1956, and and, um, and before that, of course, the, the White Russians in 1919 formed formed a lot of the basis of, or at least some of the base for the Western or NATO security services after the different events? That, well there that, were several
1: waves on. of emigration, you know, the Hungarian exodus is like four or five different periods, um, 56 was one, 48 was one, many Communists came in 48, 49, pre-war Jewish people tried to leave in the 30s, um, at the end of the First World War, Greater Hungary as it was, you didn't call it, it was Hungary, but then people found themselves living in newly alien places, then they went off. So, yeah, I mean, the, a number of the educated Hungarians went into media universities, so the BBC, World Service, had sort of um, downstairs, which seemed to me when the first time I went there as all these people, these who looked regularly yellow, who were smoking cigarettes, so have been there really since the beginnings of time, going in different corners, Moldovans over here, Hungarians over here, etc. And yes, some of those contacts, the service uh, contacts, would have been, I think, pre existed. So when you look at the Le Carre, the, there's Toby Esterhazy, you know, who's, who's, right. who's Hungarian. <laughs> yeah. But the Esterhazy's, I mean, the are still here. Yeah. But, the, but um, that family um, would have been uh, exiled, well, it's interesting, I think, probably straight after the war, rather than 56.
2: I mean, there's there is that sort of legendary story during the Manhattan Project where you'd have these Hungarian physicists working together in America on the project, talking Hungarian to each other, and then a four-star army general would wander in and they go, "Oh, we have to speak English now." Yeah. And they speak English, and then when you leave, they go back to speaking Hungarian
1: again. <laughs> well, they were a remarkable bunch, mostly educated in the. Same, in fact, even some were educated in the same school. the the Manhattan Project people.
0: So so you came to England just as it was um, starting to swing, can we say? I mean, it's 1960s, 1970s, uh, expansion of red-bit universities, mm-hmm. polytechnics, the development of, let's say, uh, a, prof- a different kind of professional class in the UK. Yeah. Do you think that was a... Uh, a, f- a good time to go. On because we, we, I mean, I my generation you know. looks at your generation and thinks, yeah, you. Yeah, you well, you, as
1: an eight year old, in 1957, there wasn't an awful lot of singing going on. Um, <laughs> there's so a famous line you know, in Philip Larkin, which says sexual intercourse began in 1963, the year of the Chatterley Band and the Beatles' That's first true. LP. <laughs> but in 1963, I was only 12. Okay. Yeah, I've been 12 because I was born at the end of 48. So all that that had begun to happen with the end of the Macmillan government, with the first Harold Wilson administration, Beatles is 1960, Beatles first LP, and then the whole kind of mash of English, American, San Francisco, Liverpool. Um, I was kind of the younger brother of those people who were really doing it. <laughs> so no, I, I, I was a kind
0: of you know passenger in a sidecar, really. Did you um, go to art school? Is that how you yeah. developed your vocation? Well, I don't, I don't
1: want to go too long, but I was going to be doing sciences and the last minute I changed and went to art school to see where I met Thursa, who is an artist. And uh, who still is an artist, I'm no longer an artist, I'm a translator instead. And um, yeah, I went to art school. In this is just in period when art schools were still regarded as so, so faintly subversive so and a little bit dangerous. Um, well, again, the height of yeah. that was about three or four years before I really went, I was really at the tail end of that. When I left art school, within two years, there was a whole lot of
0: reforms and everything was tightened up, tightened up. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Um, <laughs> so when did you first come back to Hungary? Uh, after leaving in, was it late nineteen fifty six? Yes, yes. Yeah.
1: Um, well, there was a kind of false start in 1968. When, I came, when we came as a family, father, mother, myself, my younger brother, and we stayed with this older, actually the widow, not even, she was not yet a widow, the plumber who had employed my dad. They were living in the 13th district, and we stayed with them. This was August 1968, we, we would book three weeks. 10 days after we came here, we invaded Czechoslovakia. They closed the borders, we had to get out. My parents were absolutely terrified that I'd be called up. Um, um, I don't think it was likely. We were
0: British citizens by then, but we had dual citizenship. Because they never gave up Hungarian. No, you, um, you can't make people give up a passport penny. I mean, obviously, physically rip it out of their hands. Well, and you to, you, 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 if you wanted to stop being a Hungarian citizen, you'd have to pay for it. Right.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> that was...
0: So I don't know why. Why bother? So in 1968, all of a sudden, was TV kind of playing martial music? Okay. Did you have that kind of sense that, you know, there's, a, there's an emergency going on? I woke up early in the morning, on August the 20th,
1: and I remember this fairly clearly. Before anybody else, I turned the radio on, and there was the announcement um, that our splendid army has joined the other forces of socialism and to uh, restore whatever the phrase was, I can't remember. So I was the first in the group, both my family and our hosts, to know it. Um, I was aware of the Prague Spring, I was very uh, interested and kind of fascinated by it. Um, but the intervention was unexpected. Well, I don't know, maybe it was expected, we didn't expect it. So we just had to go out fast. So that's my preliminary visit. And then I came back as a writer for the first time in '84, and then since then to regular visits.
0: Your, your, much of your work has been poetry. Mm-hmm. How easy is it to translate poetry from Hungarian to English? Because, I, I mean, I, I can imagine that being somewhat difficult, especially with the very terse, more, more terse or tightly structured... Well, you know, uh, basically, this is what I was saying in my speech yesterday, it's impossible,
1: but you've got to do it. <laughs> Um, because within the impossibilities, um, so it's not just the kind of formal restrictions of shortness of line of rhyme and other stuff. In its essence, that stuff to really translate, if by translation you mean this thing over here is going to be the same as that thing there, forget it. There's going to be transformation, but it's a potentially fruitful transformation that is the history of the world. That's to say, people speak to each other across from different cultures, produce each other's cultural um, products, um, and they are then interpreted as they're interpreted.
2: How difficult do you think it is for an an English speaker to contextualise Hungarian poetry when translated
1: into English? Depends what the poetry is. I mean, there are sort of considerable areas which are sort of purely human sort of things, Although um, you will still have to say that the temperament through which these ordinary human things, falling in love, going to a doctor's, falling off a cliff, whatever you like, all of these things are experienced through a certain temperament, which is a it's mean, just a kind of agglomeration of little things, as you will know. You know so, so what can you do with that? Not much. What you really, to some degree have to do and it's the same with fiction, because I've translated about 13 books of fiction, I mean, that either you decide to, have, okay, this is a kind of scholarly edition, and then you says but most publishers don't want that. So you have to do the best you can and try and present something which seems like a coherent experience to the reader on the other side. But then you bear in mind that even in the same language, you know, two different readers will have a different take on it. If you're brought up in, you know, East, somewhere in a small village in the eastern Hungary, they completely different text to somebody who lives in a capital. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not such an c- absolutely clear distinction as one might think.
2: Are there any topics which are more difficult to translate than others?
1: I think the most difficult things to translate in terms of poetry are not topics. Um, it is the simplest things. The sort of songs which come absolutely readily to people and which, when you translate them, they say nothing very much. But it's just that to them, they have built up so much a kind of wealth of association. And you can hear it, I can hear it in the Hungarian, <coughs> but to make people hear it in the English, that is the toughest. Cultural context, I mean, it depends on what level you want to take it. You know, if you want to say <laughs> this, take Petr, if you're the national poet, I or readers going to notice is a guy who probably dies at 26. In a battle, context of which is this, context of which is a bunch of European revolutions. Right? Well, depends on your editor, depends on your reader, depends on what else is written at the periphery. So, not necessarily in the thing, but if these poems are in an anthology, there will be an introduction and there will be
0: some kind of. But it's never a perfect, watertight thing. I mean, one of the things um, that, that you've used Twitter for is yes. to supply the world with some translations of Hungarian proverbs. Uh, yes. Some, some extremely facetistic ones here. Like, for I've made them up mostly.
1: Oh, have you? <laughs> <laughs> some are made up, that, some are real. Okay, right, <laughs> okay. remember which is which.
0: Okay, so you've got uh, what you fail to master, you will kill. Oh, that is a Hungarian, Hungarian one. I think yes, yeah. it, it, it's a yes, it, it's a war, it's a
1: worrying state of affairs. I don't know why I come to this country.
0: <laughs> we know how to bury people. Yes, I think I might have made that one up. Uh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, The fish stinks from the head down. That's Hungarian.
1: Yeah. That's Hungarian. About? Yes, yeah. yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if there were other, you know, other languages which had some kind of, you know, equivalent.
0: Like, and then a, a kind of um, a philosophical. On a phys- philosophical bent, uh, things unmentioned don't exist. That's probably me. Is that probably you? Yeah, ignore it. it. It's, it's okay. Well, no, you're
1: kind I'm, I'm v- a... Wittgenstein. Or... Well, what, what happened is that out of that's quite old, I, and I developed this thing called the New Proverbs of Hell. William Blake wrote the Proverbs of Hell, so I then made up wholly new Proverbs of Hell. Brilliant. Absolutely um, brilliant. I remember, I remember reading Yeah, this. those are fun yeah. to do. Yeah. So there's always this kind of interesting play between, you know, what is authenticated and what is real, and what is a product of the imagination, or what is the product of the imagination playing upon the authenticated and real, which is also, um, um, but I know I've never vouched for these, I think, uh, my original thing I tweeted about 20 genuine Hungarian proverbs, and then I sort of went out and let me started. well,
0: let's have some more. <laughs> Having too much fun. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? So um, it, it's interesting you mention authenticity. You know, when, when we look at you know how Hungary has developed culturally yeah. uh, in the last ten years, there is there is an element, you know, uh, what, what is authentic in Hungarian culture? It, it's the countryside, it, it's the it's the cauldron of stew. Yeah. Yeah. it's the it's a it's kind of it's a fairly kind of it, it's an aversion to modernity. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I'm just, just sort of wondering how, how how do you think this has developed since, you know, 19... I know you were here in 1989, you saw the yeah. collapse of the previous yeah. system. Yeah. I, I have a theory that you may have caused it indirectly, but... but, but yeah. That was just an observer. <laughs>
1: <He> you couldn't <laughs> possibly comment. <laughs> well, that's a really interesting question, because that's not... A, there's a non-specifically Hungarian answer to that. I always say, I have a certain distrust of the whole notion of authenticity, you know, that there is an absolutely echt thing somewhere. They may it exists, but the terms within which it is presented, I think, are nearly always somehow false. I think, authentic- and, and it tends to play against modernity, not always, but in some of its respects. I think in- authenticity is an aspect of patriotism. Patriotism is an aspect of History here of a certain degree of paranoia, which is based upon perfectly <laughs> real things. Just because they're paranoid, it doesn't mean they're not out to hurt you. So there's that. It's a kind of vulner- the way I've looked at it and written about it too is it form of vulnerability in the psyche, which comes out of long periods of history. Not a single war won since 1526. Mm. Always on the wrong side. Always looking to somehow revive its, itself through a battle or two, opening up to enormous joy, and then developing this mindset in which you always expect the worst, and you have to say, okay, so what's real? What is truly Hungarian? And the current politics plays a great deal upon that notion. But what you posit as authentic, peasant life, the life of the country, um, the symbols of a... but you pick your authenticities. You say, do I want an 1890 authenticity do I want a 1930s authenticity? Or do I actually want to go back to pre-16th century authenticity? Um, (laughs) You know, what works?
0: The way the way that um, kind of modern presentation, modern yes. modern presentation, modern communication techniques is, is sort of manufacturing this authenticity as a yeah. as a as a result of having this kind of dominant dom- domination of the political discourse. Yes. I think is is really you know, there's no other word for it. You know, there is a dominant discourse in oh, Hungary. Yeah. It's almost like you costured, uh becoming an early part of this. Let's say you know, ten fifteen years ago, the 1st Orban government was very. Yes. very keen on Koshet and I think you know even, even the name Koshet now kind of has a font in my mind it has a kind of classicist Hungarian font and that is a product of nothing else than let's say the use of design the use of professional design techniques the, you know the, the kind of way in which high technology is kind of joined with with uh, yeah. let's say these, these attempts to recreate a kind of authenticity from, from, well, what, from what the power that they have it is yeah, a couple things I think in
1: difficulty, I mean, that's what I've always felt is um, if the economic situation is hard, if the foreign situation is hard, you look to establish solidarity. And you look for the principle of solidarity and you say, well, let us unite around something. The idea of the presentation, well, I don't know, I remember in Britain, in the, in the days when you bought. Um, packaged sliced white bread. One of the chief brands was Mother's Pride. You mm, know. Right. So Mother's you bride. you play upon these kind of appeals to Granny was right. Granny made the best possible jam. <laughs> okay. Koshyut. It's very interesting that they're the on Koshyut because Koshyut is a, a liberal figure. Absolutely. And of course, as you move towards the right, Koshyut. Well, you know, what happened to Najimura? What happened to his reputation? Who mm-hmm. talks about him? He was a comic, yes, that's what they say. So now he's, he was practically a religious icon in 1989. But not anymore. But not anymore. And, you know, Horthy is on the rise. And um, so these shifts are, I, mean, I, I, I find them really quite distressing.
2: It's interesting, I was in, I was in Latvia this week, mm-hmm. um, and it's sort of interesting how, in, sort of, in terms of identity and authenticity, the Latvians, uh, and generally the Baltic countries, so Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, they have, they have a kind of modernizing benchmark, which is Scandinavia. So for, so for, for Latvians and Lithuanians, they, they, don't, they, they don't struggle with, on the one hand, becoming modern or modernizing. Yeah but keeping their traditions because almost all of the traditions that the Baltic countries have, the Scandinavians have, and so they can kind of say, well, the Scandinavians still celebrate Midsummer in the way we celebrate Midsummer. There's no contradiction between the pursuit of the authentic and the pursuit of the modern. They they, they kind of go hand in hand, whereas the perception I have of Hungary is there is this kind of uh, struggle to reconcile what we define as the traditional and the authentic, as you suggested, and this concept of Becoming European, modernising in the sort of the, in the standard discourse. Oh
1: yeah. well, both both tendencies are here. I think one of the uses of the CK flag, the Transylvanian flag, is to situate the authentic there. Yeah. because that's pre-Trianon, pre-Versailles. Right. That was real Hungary, um, and that was a trauma. It really was a trauma. It's an understandable trauma. Because even in terms of the imagination, so much Hungarian literature and art took place in territories elsewhere. That's the kind of trauma that represents. And but because it's gone, because it's cut off, you're not going to get back there. So that kind of reconciliation between the authentic, which can be located there,
0: and the modern is is, is at tension here. Isn't underpinning this as well um, an expectation that you know? in Hungary, that, that the powerful, that the wealthy, will basically exert their authority over those who are less fortunate. I mean, is there a kind of at the core of this, is there not a pessimism which has run let's say through the communist era, like a... It, Way before.
1: Yeah. Way before. I mean, basically what be, some people said to me when I first came back in 84, this is we are the remnants of a feudal country. Um, so, <coughs> landlords peasants, workers, you, you, it's a classic kind of picture um, and then that is kind of modified by events, by different um, regimes, but the idea of having privilege of, of those with privilege has remained, you know, so during the Communist Party period, the, the, the party had privilege they could shop as they lived in different circumstances um, that is not what's hmm. I'm not quite sure what I think about this, so I, I don't want to go too far, but I, I think that the acceptance of privilege um, depends on who is enjoying that privilege. Yeah. So some, you expect it from some people, so if you, the old aristocrats came back, they had their privilege. The old landowners, that would be kind of expectable. Some of the nouveau riche, probably not. Yeah. The political elite, Okay, providing you can't show, you, providing there's no obvious corruption, and there's been masses of that, I think. Yes, um, so that's a, a
0: slightly more nuanced sort of situation, I think. Uh, I'm just, you know, when we when we look at the numbers from the, the election, yes. you know, um, which was just last month, uh, we have a turnout now which has fallen to the 60% level. You know, so, so we're looking at declining turnouts, you know, in each instance for, for these elections. So, yeah, we have Fidesz with a two-thirds majority in, in Parliament, but I believe it was less than a quarter of the electorate that actually turned out and bothered to vote for them. Surely, this represents a kind of passivity. I mean, people may not like uh, the current government, but, but they feel kind of, possibly, the people who are most affected by the government's actions feel disenfranchised. And, and you know, to me, this, this looks almost like a parallel situation that we, we had in the 1980s, with particularly the USA. Reaganite America, the, the decline of turnout in elections, the, the way that minorities gave up voting. Mm-hmm. I mean, is, do you think there's a parallel there? I mean, obviously America is in a very different situation. Well,
1: there, there, but there, there, there's a certain level of parallel, even with the UK, I mean, because turnout is never that great. today's European Election Day, isn't it? God knows what the turnout's going to be there, it's going to be really low. Um, and again, you have your, the representation in Parliament doesn't necessarily mass, match the, you know, the voting generally. We don't have a kind of list system. So to some degree that is the case. I think it would be interesting to know, because I don't know about the rest of Europe, how far this kind of disillusionment or self-distancing from a politics that is clearly kind of highly projected through various kinds of media and people just say, it's another politician. I don't trust any of them. Let them go on with it, etc, etc. And so it goes on until things become too bad when there is resentment and then something or other may or may not happen.
2: And you can contrast that with the Indian elections that took place last month because it takes a month to have Indian elections where you had 600 million people voting. Um, Which was only sixty-seven percent of the electorate, but you
1: know. Well, Well, yes, and they delivered a fairly kind of decisive decisive result. Yeah. yeah. Um, It depends, I think, to some degree. In the West, we're kind of spoiled. We just think life will go on in much the same way, whatever happens. You vote centre left, you vote centre right, makes little difference to your everyday life. On the whole, little things. You know, you would mm-hmm. say if you voted for Tony Blair in 1997, you'd have had a minimum wage which you didn't have before, you'd have had better social care, but the mechanics of things wouldn't really change, nothing was going to be renationalised, nationalized everything was going to carry on working on the same pattern which had taken from Mrs Thatcher and so forth, mm-hmm. so people say, okay, why, what's it to do with me, they're just going to what they'll do anyway, and, uh, but this is more the case here and... In a way it's more disappointing because you'd think that after sort of many years, and this is a country with very little um, in terms of stable democratic government, you'd think there would be some, the people would value it and would, therefore would want to exercise their right. But one of the things that kind of shocked me was how quickly this disillusion came after nineteen eighty nine, within. It seemed to me, I mean, yeah. but it seemed to me after within a very few years, this enormous skepticism settled on people like a great wet blanket.
2: How do you explain that?
1: Maybe they hoped for too much. So maybe there are some people who are invested in what had been, um, some purely for kind of convenience reasons, some for ideological reasons, but the ideology was always small. On the other hand, okay, now we're going to be, everything's going to be great, but the first thing that created them was unemployment, um, inflation, the loss of value of pensions, genteel old ladies begging in the street, um, so what was this all about, okay, now you can have 17 brands of toothpaste over as one Hungarian wrote, um, but I don't need all that toothpaste, I, uh, what I want is security, what I want is stability. And that's not what I'm getting. So the immediate period after 89 was, a, and of course, unemployment, all of mm-hmm. the, the production Re- closed. Really shot. high
0: levels of unemployment, yeah. Very high. I mean, sort of up to 90%, I think, in the northeast of Hungary. Some, People were,
1: well, I live, don't live in London, I live in East Anglia, but there used to be Hungarian workers who came to work in chicken packing factories. They'd sometimes seek me out because they would, they would have no English, and they'd want to go through law because. Oh their rights, as soon as they were hired here, they signed contracts they couldn't read. Um, People at the far end took away their passports. Uh Um, They they thought they were going to have to pay a one-off fee, but they had to pay it once a month. So by the time they finished working after a week, they had very little money. Um, And so these are steel workers from and that kind of thing, you know, who are trying to send their money back. So the disillusionment, Yeah, it's because I suppose there wasn't um, outside the intelligentsia, if you like, which I I don't know the other, but those are the people I know, and um, I imagine that there isn't an awful lot of political ideology going on, apart from us thinking, we are Hungarians, we're proud of who we are, we want our rights, we want to be respected, and all that sort of thing.
2: Do you have a comparative perspective on this in terms of, you know, other countries experienced a similar kind of uh, transformation of the political and social system. I mean, are other countries that have done things differently or similarly?
1: Well, Poland went through this shock therapy didn't it, you know, economically. Um, so it was dreadful for them to begin with. But then Poland is a kind of unified country, unified by religion. It doesn't have great minorities, it killed off most of its Jews anyway. It's very high in anti-Semitism even now. Um, but... so Quite Poland, Hungary, you'd say. Yeah, Hungary is about 40-something percent, you know, yeah. Poland is up in the 50s or something. Um, but, yes, Poland I knew of as the exception. East Germany was another exception because, of course, they were absorbed into greater Germany. Romania had its own wonderfully corrupt sort of um, system. Um, but Romania is also like Hungary. At the bottom it was a feudal sort of state with, you know, rural poor poor working class so Romania was gaining on the whole um, Hungary I keep thinking with Hungary it's it's a historical problem, it's having very little periods of autonomy um, always feeling that you're on a losing side eventually some bigger guy is always coming in, ok so it's the Ottoman Turks now it's the Habsburgs now, it's the Soviet Union and now, god save us all it's the EU yeah. <laughs> so that's the way to see the EU and that's the way that Orban plays it basically I think he says the EU the EU is not going to be we're not going to live under the yoke of the EU and somebody used the term the yoke of liberalism as well I thought it was a Norman yoke that's
0: nice you you translated um, Kwasnay Hawkeye's novel um, Shatang Tango which Mm -hmm. is a, a, a fantastic if if somewhat Heavy read, maybe not one for uh, air aircraft Few jokes. <laughs> right. There's the, this idea in this in this book, which yeah. was something which ran very contrary to, as I say, this this prevailing discourse. You know, of hu- rural Hungary as being a happy, contented, you know, kind of settled place. It was, you know, the portrayal, and I, I think a controversial portrayal of uh, rural Hungarians and um, kind of cheating on each other in, in different ways, a sort of like, it's a, a story, isn't it, of, of yeah. deep corruption. This Is is this <laughs> closer to the, an authentic version of, of real life? Well, you know, obviously the truth is in the middle, yeah, but, but what, was, what was interesting about this book is that it, it almost set out deliberately to disrupt this he, kind of... Krasnohorka is a kind of visionary writer, and his vision
1: is fairly bleak. <laughs> Within that, it has humour in it. I mean, Satan Tango is not without humour, yeah. um, but it's a bleak black humour. The image he presents you of a kind of, in Satan Tango, of a left-over, failed, um, cooperative farm, yeah? um, in which people are living, but that's still elements of some police state, yes. because the people are set to observe each other. Well, that's, that's, he's writing about his part of the country, that's where he comes from. Right. When I first read Kirsten Horge, not Satan Tango, but uh, the first book of his I translated, which is marvelous to the melancholy of resistance, I thought he was writing about Romania. <laughs> but no, he said, no, no, it, it is east of Hungary. Um, that's where the poverty is, and that's where a lot of these um problems are. I think when the Hungarians think about <coughs> patriotic Hungarians think about uh, agriculture, they think, you know vineyards. The pusta, the you know the cattle, the the shepherds, the storks landing on the you know etc etc. It's what you get from folk tales, but um, that's but even in the 1930s the,
0: the peasants were really very very poor. Absolutely,
1: and, you know they, they were
0: starving. I mean there there is I mean there was a lot of talk about historical falsification, and I I believe this is uh, very important in terms of historical falsification. Firstly, to falsify the history of the countryside, falsified the history of the people who, who uh, lived in the countryside, let's say, before the 1940s and then got put, pushed into the towns by the industrialisation of the, let's say, the 1950s and 1960s, which, which does account for a lot of people, I think, maybe even Victor Orban's grandfather was a, a farmer who, who got, you know, kind of moved into a city. And, and so, so I think this is, this is a, an important aspect to uh, historical falsification. Uh, the way that this, this rural, let's say, this country life is perceived, it's very, I think it's, it's crucial. Um, people in the countryside are often very poor, yeah? Um, but, but this cultural interpretation of, of rural life kind of, <clears throat> in a way, I think it kind of locks them in to a situation where you know, there, there's no escape politically, there's no, no chance of political redress yeah, some of I think what Horoban uh, doing issues.
1: is not altogether different from what Horty was doing when Horty came in he too fetishised the countryside he, you know people in folk costume um, the whole business was built around that You know, we are these ancient people um, with our bread customs, with our dances with our great products mm-hmm. um, and that rural life is a kind of idyll um, or at least there is within it that which can be presented as a kind of idol, and the kind of falsification which goes on. I mean, I don't say hunger is is unique in that no, falsification is a natural product. Mm-hmm. But um, <coughs> the statue, the 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 Holocaust statue, which is going up about which there has been a lot, about which people are still daily protesting, where Germany is uh, depicted as an eagle and poor Hungary as this angel who's being torn to pieces. I mean. No, no, um, that is falsification. But you know why it's happening. Because he thinks we want to make people feel good about themselves. If they feel good about themselves, they feel good about us. <laughs> they will carry on voting for us because we make them feel good. It's a kind of close circle.
2: I have a related question. Um, and obviously, you know, you can't psychoanalyse people either historically or contemporaneously. In your opinion, how much of this kind of um, celebration of this sort of perhaps non-existent rural history
1: is done for expediency, or or the leaders genuinely feel that way? Oh, who knows? Who knows? I can't read them. I mean, I, some of them are clearly some of, of, of Orbán's associates are clearly far right piece of people, um, and I don't know how cynical they're being. How? People can believe what they, people are very good at believing what they want to believe and uh, so they don't genuinely believe it. Some people who are kind of cynical about it can exploit that and um, how far what Orban believes, I don't know. but no he's a, he's a very good orator in his terms. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a remarkably good manipulator of people. He's, he's a very effective leader. The word that is sometimes used about him is charismatic, He has all that, so he tries to embody all of this stuff um, under his general kind of presentation.
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I agree with all of that, but I do think there is a risk of uh, of giving him an aura of infallibility. After all, he he has been beaten more than (laughs) once, and uh, electorally. He was, I think, he was nearly finished in 1994 uh, as a politician, and that that's something you know I think we should kind of also bear in mind um, oh i don't I don't say he's
1: infallible of <laughs> course, yeah. but this this is what he will play on this is he's good at these things he doesn 't have to be infinitely good if there were a kind of part more believable credible opposition, then there would
0: be a proper challenge now this this is a question that I think is um, something that you know maybe we can talk about a little bit now. Do you, do you think there was a degree of naivety back in 1989 um, about you know on the on the on the side of the liberals? And I, I don't want to be kind of personally critical because you know, I, I understand that there were a lot of good intentions, but but it seems to me that a lot of the liberals in 19 1989, 1989 had a human rights focus you know, rather than a social justice focus, and I can understand in a way after. 40 years of communism that, that you might not think that the problem with Hungary is that it just hasn't been left-wing enough, yeah? <laughs> that, that's like kind of, you know, that would be somewhat counterintuitive, you know, to, to well, think if that if you bear it. in
1: mind that in 90, through the 80s, there wasn't an enormous pay gap, apart from, you know, certain people up in the party, but only, a, you know, people were... The bus drivers were getting better paid than, say, the doctors. The doctors had to be made up in other ways. So there was a certain degree of kind of social balance in terms of wealth, I think. The liberals who I knew, be- because um, in 1890 we were here, we were living in the flat of Horasty Miklos, who I didn't know then, but who then, you know, during a year he was in America, he'd come back and we'd talk a lot. I asked him once. He said they were founding a party. This was back in March. I said, "What is it? It's called the SDS." He said, what, is he said, it's said, what do you say? It's a liberal party. When you say liberal, so do you mean like the British liberals? I said, "Yeah." Okay. No. So what you didn't have is you didn't. You, you had the kind of economic liberals, and then you had the social liberals. So everything after eighty-nine is this huge melting point, point. and there wasn't. And I, I, that was the MDF, which was a sort of conservative party but there was no clear ideology in the politics. It was just, okay, we've thrown it away. We belong to one or a bunch. We're a tribe, the MDF had a tribe, who then had moved kind of rightwards, so moved with FIDES, who FIDES were a completely different thing in 89. Uh, and then there was the MSP and there's the SDS, so we kind of, you know, probably a bit heavy in Budapest intellectuals. And they were—I took them to be on the whole of the left, but some of them went off and became kind of Thatcherite economic liberals. But there was no definition, and are still—it's still very hard to find that.
0: Yeah, the, and this maybe goes back to kind of institutional weaknesses. So, so all these parties haven't managed. You know, I mean, when when we say party, I'll exclude Fidesz from this consideration. Fidesz. But most parties haven't really been able to organise themselves as. Uh, functioning democratic organisations, which obviously it's difficult everywhere, you know, but but it strikes me that these institutions are very weak in Hungary. They are weak. I, when people used to ask me in England
1: in the, you know, the Hungarian Socialist Party government, what's it like? And I said, yeah, it's a little to the right of Tony Blair. <laughs> it, 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 you know, it's unfair. But broadly speaking, yeah. the old socialists, that's, You know, what, the reason everything fell apart so quickly in the is because the party was a career as much as a yeah as a body of ideas. And, you know, people went in various directions after that. And the left, very hard, it is a really hard task, because it's what it can refer to as successes are delimited, you know. What do you want to do? You want to say, we could be like Venezuela. Could we be like Venezuela? We could be like Cuba. Could we be like Cuba? We could be like who do you, okay,
0: Scandinavia. We can do Scandinavia. Where's the model exactly? What what model are we? What Canadian? is the
1: model? And yeah. um, and Scandinavia is based upon sort of long periods of stability. And you know, people actually, I'm assuming I don't know about Scandinavia. You probably mm. do, is that deciding this is the kind of society we want to have, um, rather than over here saying maybe we don't know what kind of society we want to have, but we want to have traditional values.
2: I mean, one one thing I heard about the. Scandinavian capitalism, perhaps the deception of Norway because of its reliance on natural resources, is that large wealthy families Mm -hmm. in Sweden and Denmark control the economy, so in in Denmark you've got the Maersk family which control all the shipping, Mm -hmm. you've got the Persons and the Hults uh, who control whole swathes, the Wallenbergs who control whole swathes of the economy and it seems to me that the the educated Scandinavian families have done a deal with the state Mm -hmm. more or less where they say if you don't tax capital too much, mm-hmm. we will we will provide employment and welfare, social, for social net.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's something under circumstances. Um, but it's as I say, if you are left in a sense, like, can I imagine the UK turn back? Say, okay, we're going to renationalise. What are we going to share? We haven't got any mines. Are we going to renationalise shipping? Well, we haven't got much fish. No, we, we can't do that. Railways, maybe we could re railways. What's it going to cost?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Etc. You know, it's it's it,
1: that's a very very hard to know what model to turn to. So what you have are the social instincts that you can appeal to. You say, do you want to see vast disparities of wealth? Do you want to see people sleeping rough? Do you want to see people trapped in this or other a, a, a form of poverty? Do you wish for, for whatever it is to be able to move through to higher education to be affordable, so it comes down to a series of r- very practical questions, which you can then present to people and say, look, if you have a conscience, you could do that, but you're not presenting a package, you're not presenting a bundle. I don't. Mm-hmm. That's I, well. I think that's a problem. I don't know. You might think quite differently.
2: I mean, do you do you see a kind of rather than a left-right cleavage? Yeah. Do you do you see other cleavages emerging? For example, like populism versus elitism?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's very strong. Um, where is populism? From which point is populism perceived to be populism? From which point is elitism um, uh, presented as elitism? You see it then, and you see. It Tribal differences, instinctive tribal differences, much as you see different football supporters. It's a series of individual issues. Um, I think it strikes me over here that the political discourse is cruder rougher um, generally last year. We've kind of got it's all butted in the UK. generally it's butted. It's, you, you can kind of but it's very hard to work up a kind of oppositional sense. Apart from, if you say if you're on the right, you might say, "Oh, these people are restricting our liberties. They're for a tight state. They're in enough. They're, they're letting in the immigrants. They take our jobs, which they do." Well, I don't, they do, there's nobody streaming in here, presumed to take Hungarian jobs, because all the Hungarians are going elsewhere. Um, but it's that kind of discourse, and other people saying. Can, like even David Cameron tries to say, I don't know how much he tries to, he believes it, that actually we depend upon, you know, immigrant labour. Um, for a start, we've got an ageing population, somebody's got to pay the taxes, blah, blah, blah. There are all these pragmatic arguments for m- moral areas. Yeah? Yeah. And, and, and that's where I think things happen. That's through immediate pragmatics, you can then appeal to what I think, you know, left-wing socialism appealed to in the first place. Inequality, injustice, but to use them as a sort of broad handles, just washes of people, I think, on the whole, you've got to say, see, that's how we're going to make that better. See how, the. That's how I think it works anyway. One more question in that case. It's very interesting what you've just said, George. I mean,
2: so what's your view about sort of Orbán's sort of you know, fixing electricity prices, making it hard for foreign multinationals to operate, I mean, where do you locate that but in sort some foreign multinationals, multinationals? Well, that,
1: that could be a key, quali- key qualifier, um, well, yes, I mean, obviously there's are sort of benefits to people, it's not as if um, even, as they say, Mussolini made the trains are on time, you, you mm. can do certain things and those things have good effects. Yes, I assume so. Um, The business of fixing electricity prices, restricting um, the uh, ownership of major utilities, that kind of thing. Um, But I would expect, I would have hoped that a socialist government would have done something like that, but with a different sort of agenda. But I'm no economist. economist. I, I feel stupid when I talk about this. So all I can really talk about is, if you like, a kind of Pragmatic politics and, and ideas. When it comes to, I don't know whether Orbán has wrecked the economy or his or, or the economy is flowering wonderfully. If I listen to the, if I read the official spinoblogs, uh, I think, gosh, Hungary, the economy is, is undergoing a tremendous no. great flowering. Yeah, I
0: mean, I mean, you could say that. I mean, we could also say that Pinochet's Chile, Chile had had massive growth growth rates in the 1980s You know, freakishly nine yeah. percent. You know, this is like kind of. You know, this this is something that, that can happen even in, in the most kind of unpromising situations for for the majority of people. Oh, yeah. And yeah. we what we see, I think, in Hungary is you know, unemployment really dropping as a result of um, workfare, which yeah. which is I, I believe it's going to be moved. Workfare is going to be extended so that so it's actually un, unrestricted. So yeah. someone who's out of work for three months could get placed onto workfare basically for the rest of their lives. So yeah. That's a, a standard. Uh, wage, if you like, of forty-seven thousand francs a month. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, essentially uh, is institutionalized in, institutionalization of poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, provides a, I think, a very cheap workforce for for the yeah. people who yeah. who can exploit that. And and this once again is, I think, you know, this is this is tied into this. I, I would call it a fascist inclination to move the problems that exist onto the backs of the most vulnerable, the people who are least yeah. likely to respond, who, who are, you know, electrically disadvantaged. That is how I would
1: understand it. So whatever immediate good effects might come across from fixing particular prices, I, I, it does not make me love him in mm-hmm. any respect. I think, yeah, I think Hungary is, is, there's, there's a danger of Hungary moving towards a more fascist sort of um, structure and that mentality.
2: And that was behind my question about populism, yeah. elitism versus left versus right, because I think in some senses, the, 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 the center left and the progressive left in Hungary has become discredited yeah. precisely because it became successfully tarred with this elitist brush, yeah. right? So, when, so people vote for Fidesz because they don't like the quote-unquote Budapest liberals. Yeah. Because they don't understand what it is to be really Hungarian, right? I mean, I mean, they're a bunch of Jews anyway. Well, and there's that's kind a, of, of anti-Semitism which is deeply rooted in this kind of mistrust,
1: yeah. as well. Well, in, uh, the, to some degree, that exists in other places, but as with everything, it exists more intensely here, as, as far as I'm aware. You know, you get that in England, in, in the UK too. People complain, you know. This, the chattering classes you know that's another name for, for liberals educated liberals, they impose this kind of standards on us but that's not what we really say between ourselves and that discontent runs through the working class as well as through the uh, lower middle class.
0: It's, I mean it seems to be at the moment a, a very popular formulation of what you've got is essentially neoliberalism in, in that the state is, is become a kind of client state yes. on the one hand and then combining that with this kind of populist nationalism, and, and this, this kind of combination, I mean, we mentioned India earlier, seems to be really potent at the moment, and this, this seems to be working for lots of people everywhere, uh, in, in, lots of politicians of, of the right everywhere. But, but do you
1: detect, because I don't live here, I mean, do you, do you detect any coherent discontent with
0: the uh, Policies that are in place. I mean, I've, I mean, yeah, I've, I've spoken to people, for example, regarding tax rates. Uh, people used to complain a lot about the high levels of income tax. Uh, they felt that their income tax was given away as handouts to people who, who were slackers, lazy, oh, yeah, yeah. etc. So, um, you know, basically, that has become associated with a form of Hungarianness. That that mm-hmm. low, low income taxation rate has now become. You know, this is this is what the Hungarians do. That, that I, I, I mean, that's, that's been happening over the last few years and it would be very hard for a government now to come in. We've talked about Scandinavia. It would be very hard for any government to come here now and introduce Scandinavian levels of tax, which are probably required in order to do some You know, I could say UK, you get very parallel things,
1: but they dropped into a very different kind of pot. You know, yeah. The pot that is here that has all of that, which I recognize over there too, um, it's here, It chemically, it works differently. And I think because it's a smaller country, it's a lot smaller, and it actually doesn't have huge minorities, um, it has a potential. Orban's whole effort has been, I think, to create. A kind of great central mass which will support him, because a, he speaks, he speaks the right way, so he flatters them. two, he gives them well you know certain things, like like, like cheap electricity. and the slackers, you know, we are honest, we are, we are honest citizens, and those are slackers. You get that in England, too.
0: yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, if I can just... Uh, I think maybe we're getting into to the end now, maybe yeah. the last, last couple of minutes. Sure. But um, uh, when, we, when we talk about, um, you know, the future and, and how things are going to go in the future, I mean, uh, you're someone, I mean, I think, who, who, who you know, you've worked in education uh, for a long time. I mean, how, how do you perceive the Hungarian education system development? How do you... I mean, there is, uh, I think, like even now, despite... Uh, let's say, official government policies. There is this sense in Budapest, isn't there, of like, a certain amount of possibilities, with, with, you know, creativity, there's a certain amount of possibilities in relation to new ideas and innovation. I, yeah. I mean, I, I still get that feeling here, even though it's not officially mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. supported in a way, it sort of happens almost on its own volition. I mean, is there a it varies, I think there's a a great range
1: of different kinds of schools, the best kind of education when I used to come here and I used to teach people, I I was very impressed by how curious they were about everything, how ready to learn they were in a slightly Prussian sort of system, so what they weren't used to was asking an awful lot of questions on this to come aside privately and then they were absolutely full of questions but again, I'm very aware that what I know is Budapest and I know and I know the equivalent of the chattering classes. That's those are the people I really know. The rest I read about. But the people I talk to are intelligent, educated, on the whole, liberal left liberal people, um, who are, as you were saying, they're, they're discredited um, through various, you know, various things. There there has been corruption, there has been all, all this kind of thing. Um, and as always, in no country is a capital representative of the, of, the rest, of the rest of the country. But it's in Trump's here. When Horty marched into Budapest in, on his white horse, he referred to the sinful city of Budapest, which I forgive. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 was, it, it was the city of sin, you know, out there were the idealised peasants, who were actually starving and doing all of that, um, whose, vo- whose voice was it? Would it have been the sort of rural middle class, I suppose, who would have said, you know, they're doing terrible things over there, you know, look at what's going on in the theatres, look at what's called, what the newspapers are writing, you know. Um, you don't get that quite so much in England, because you've got other major industrial centres and Birmingham's big and Manchester's big and so forth. Yeah, yeah. But here, it just comes up with this extra little bite, I think. Thanks very much. It's very A great, great Thanks. pleasure. Very nice to talk to you. Thank you very much. Um, and good luck.